For we pray in Christ Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. This morning we are concluding our series on the means of grace that we began a few weeks ago. As Pastor Luke pointed out in his message a couple weeks ago, grace is not some abstraction, it's not some gas or vapor that God is extending to us from heaven, rather we get grace from Christ himself. Christ is the grace. When Christ ascended into heaven after his resurrection, Ephesians 4.8 says that he gave gifts to men. What are these gifts that Christ gave? Well, verse 11 tells us in Ephesians 4, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, beloved, what do all of these offices have in common? They are offices that serve up the word of God to the church. And this is no small thing. The word where Christ is found accomplishes things on earth that nothing else can accomplish. The the Bible alone equips us and builds us up and perfects us for Christ. Therefore, we read the Bible, sing the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, and this morning, we're going to taste and see the Bible through the sacraments, namely through baptism and the Lord's Supper. So let's begin. Why do we use the word sacrament? I mean, that word is not even found in the Bible, so why use it? Well, for two main reasons. First, because it's been a part of the heritage of the church for the last 2,000 years. And secondly, because it most captures what is happening when we baptize and when we go to the table. The word sacrament means a solemn oath. A solemn oath. In ancient writings, a sacrament was a military oath that a soldier took to bind himself to his commanding officer. So sacraments are solemn oaths that bind two parties together. In other words, at the very heart of sacrament is covenant. Listen to how the Shorter Catechism puts it. Question 92, what is a sacrament? A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented sealed and applied to believers. Now I submit to you that the reason why we as evangelicals often misunderstand or undervalue the sacraments is because we don't understand covenant. How important is covenant in scripture? 
Well, this might be a, a superficial test, but consider it anyway. Uh, the word covenant is mentioned 316 times in the ESV Bible. That means that covenant is mentioned more often than the word grace, 128 times. Covenant is mentioned more often than the word gospel, mentioned 98 times, more often than the word mercy, 157 times, more often the word hope, 164 times, and more often than the word salvation, 178 times. The Bible is covenantal from start to finish. If we don't understand the sacraments, it's because we don't understand covenant. So may God open the eyes of our heart this morning that we may taste and see his covenant love in the sacraments. Here is our big idea this morning. The sacraments are signs and seals of God's everlasting covenant promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. So our outline is uh, doctrine, duty, and delight. So let's look first of all at our doctrine. Our text is from Romans. If you're not there, please turn there. Um, And let's get caught up to speed to the text that we read. So in Romans chapter 1, Paul demonstrated that the entire Roman world stands guilty before God. Then in Romans chapter 2, he says, well, and the entire Jewish world stands guilty before God. And then in chapter 3, he summarizes it in verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He then tells us, what God did in order to redeem fallen Gentiles and Jews in chapter 3, verse 25. God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Christ alone can propitiate sin. He alone can atone or satisfy or appease the holiness of God by his shed blood. That's what sin requires is the shedding of blood. So Christ shed his blood. He propitiated God in our stead. And all who trust in Christ, who receive him, who believe on his name, are then justified before God. That means that God accepts us as righteous in his sight, not because of any works that we have done, but only because he imputes his righteousness to us received by faith alone. Enter chapter 4. You have to understand that the context for for chapter 4 is that the greatest enemy of the church in Paul's day was the Judaizers. Judaizers. The Judaizers were false brothers. They believed in Christ, but they dogmatically insisted that circumcision, uh, the sacrament of the Old Covenant, was also necessary for salvation. And so Paul turns to Abraham the father and root of the nation of Israel, because God instituted circumcision with him. So look with me at verse 1. What then shall we say? 
was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. In other words, Paul's asking, well, what good work did Abraham do to contribute to his salvation? Paul then quotes Genesis 15, 6 in verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was a former pagan, a moon worshiper, and God justified him not on the basis of his works, but on the basis of believing God. Look at verse 9. Is this blessing, the blessing of justification, then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Now remember, he's arguing against the Judaizers. He's asking them, is it just those who have been circumcised who can be justified? Or do the uncircumcised, can they be justified also? And his argument is so delicious here. Look at verse 10. How then was it, righteousness, counted to him, Abraham? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised. Uh, Paul here is drawing on the account back in Genesis. When God first called Abram out of Babylon, uh, the text says in Genesis 12, 4, that he was 75 years old. That was the first time he believed God. And then God didn't give him the sacrament of circumcision until Genesis 17, which the text tells us he was 99 years old. In other words, there was a 14-year gap between Abraham's belief and his circumcision. And that absolutely destroys the argument of the Judaizers that we need Christ plus something. Abraham himself, the father, the root of Israel, was made righteous a full 14 years before his circumcision. Now, here's the question. Why did God wait so long to initiate the sacrament of circumcision. Look halfway through verse 11. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. God waited 14 years to circumcise Abraham so that no one could conclude that circumcision was necessary for salvation. The sacrament of circumcision does not get the glory for Abraham's righteousness. Christ alone does. So, so you see here that part of Paul's design here in Romans 4 is to demolish the idea that the sacraments contribute to our salvation. The sacraments in themselves contribute nothing to our righteousness before God. We are not more righteous if we participate them in them, and we are not less righteous if we don't. The Judaizers were absolutely wrong. 
But here's the million-dollar question. The last question was like the thousand-dollar question. Here's the million-dollar question. Then why did God institute the sacraments? If circumcision didn't contribute to Abraham's justification, then why did God command him to be circumcised? Because circumcision was a precious token of God's covenant love to Abraham. It was his solemn oath to Abraham. It was his sign and seal of the covenant to Abraham. Look at verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He used two words there, sign and seal. Let's take those one at a time. First, circumcision is a sign. A sign uh, defined is a distinguishing mark or token by which something else is known. A sign is a distinguishing mark or token by which something else is known. And circumcision signified at least two things. First, circumcision was a sign that man's sinful nature must be put to death. It must be cut off. As Calvin said, by cutting off in man whatever is born of the flesh, he has shown that his whole nature has become sinful. And then secondly, it's a sign that Christ would be cut off for the sins of his people. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul calls the death of Christ the circumcision of Christ. So those two things, circumcision was a sign that man's sinful nature must be put to death and it's a sign of the future death of Christ for his people. But secondly, circumcision was also a seal. A seal is a solemn oath by which something is confirmed beyond all doubt. A seal is a solemn oath by which something is confirmed by all doubt. Look again at verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. So God commanded Abraham to cut his flesh, the most sensitive part of his whole body, so that every time he looked down, Every time he went pee, every time he got undressed, he would see God's solemn oath that he possessed the righteousness of God obtained through faith alone. It was God's mark on Abraham that he was God's man. Circumcision was the seal, the solemn oath, the the sacrament from God that Abraham really possessed righteousness. What does circumcision have to do with us? Um, Circumcision clearly has passed away. So how does this text help us understand sacraments today? Well, it helps us because Paul is actually teaching us something about the nature of all sacraments. 
all sacraments, whether they be circumcision or baptism, Lord's Supper or Passover, have this in common. They are signs and they are seals. Now children, boys and girls, I actually think that this is a really easy concept for you to understand. So let's think about a zebra and a monkey. Those are pretty different animals, aren't they? What do they have in common? What does a zebra have in common with a monkey? Well, they're both mammals. They're both warm-blooded. They both give birth to live babies. We can, we can use that analogy to think about the sacraments. The sacraments in themselves are very different. Circumcision is very different from baptism, but they have something in common. They both are signs and seals. There's no such thing as a sacrament that's not a sign and a seal. Why have the sacraments changed under the new covenant? Uh, why is circumcision given way to baptism? Why is Passover given way to the Lord's Supper? Well, for two reasons. Number one, because Jesus said so. <laughs> that should be enough. Um, when giving the, the great commission, it was baptism that Jesus instituted, not circumcision. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Furthermore, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, uh, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in the place of Passover. Matthew 26, 26 through 29. But the second reason that the sacraments have changed from the old to the new is because Jesus completely finished his bloody work on the cross. The Old Testament was a testament of blood. Circumcision was bloody. Passover was bloody. Christ was the last sacrifice. So now the bloody sacrament of circumcision has been changed to the bloodless sacrament of baptism. The bloody sacrament of, of Passover has changed to the bloodless sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So the outward forms of the sacraments are different, but their essential nature is the same. They are signs and seals. And that brings us then to our doctrine this morning. The sacraments are signs and seals of God's everlasting covenant promise that I will be your God and you will be my people. And immediately a question should come to the fore of all of our minds. We are a very word-centric church. We put sola scriptura on our banners, don't we? Scripture alone. So, so why do we need the sacraments if we have the word. Isn't the word enough to convince us that God really is our God and that we really are his people? Isn't the word enough? Well, there's nothing wrong with the word, is there? Uh, the word is enough. Uh, God didn't give us the sacraments because the word was deficient. Rather, he gave us the sacraments for our sake. In his great kindness, God condescended to our creatureliness. You see, we are spirit and flesh. He has given us a promise that we can hear in our spirit. 
I am your God and you are my people. But then in his kindness, he speaks that same uh, promise to our flesh, a promise that we can taste and hear and smell and touch. And that's what happens in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Father gives us his son in the word to our spirit. The Father gives us his son in sacrament to our body. And that twofold confirmation of God's promise is always how he has done things since the very beginning. He's given his word and sacrament to confirm all of his promises. So let's consider three proofs together of how God has always done this. Proof number one, the word and sacrament in the covenant of works. The word and sacrament in the covenant of works. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. This is where God entered into what we call the covenant of works with Adam before he fell into sin. Look at verse 16 with me. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the the reverse inference is that if Adam would have obeyed God, he would have lived forever and he would have never died. God spoke that promise to Adam's spirit. Adam heard it. What sacrament did God give Adam to confirm the promise to his body, the tree of life. Look at verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life was the sacrament of the covenant of works. If Adam would have obeyed, he would have eaten of the tree of life and it would have confirmed God's promise to his taste, sight, touch, and smell. That's precisely why God drove him out of the garden after he sinned. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. Lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Adam was forbidden to eat of the tree of life as a confirmation of God's promise because he broke the covenant. But that's our first proof. In the covenant works, God provided a promise of life to Adam and he provided a sign and seal of that promise in the sacrament of the tree of life. So the promise was received in spirit and in body. Let's look at proof number two, the word and sacrament in the covenant of grace. The word and sacrament in the covenant of grace. Now, after Adam sinned, God then immediately entered into another covenant with him, which we call the covenant of grace. Look at the promise that God makes in Genesis 3.15. Now, he's speaking to the serpent here. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Children, who is the offspring of the woman? Christ. 
and he defeated the serpent on the cross. So God spoke this word promise to Adam and Eve's spirit. What sacrament did God give to confirm this promise to their bodies? Well, it was a one-time sacrament. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God killed animals and used their skin to clothe them. The very first sacrifice was a sign and seal of the ultimate sacrifice to be made by Christ. So that's the second proof that God promised Adam and Eve that Christ would come and defeat the serpent. And he signed and sealed that promise by slaying the animal and giving them clothes. The promise was received in their spirit and in their body. Let's look at proof number three. The word and sacrament in the Noahic covenant. The word and sacrament in the Noahic covenant. Please turn to Genesis 9. And this is where we find the covenant that God made with Noah and all the earth. You... you, participate in this sign and seal of the covenant. Immediately after the flood, the Lord gave this covenant to Noah's spirit in a word of promise that he would never flood the earth. Look at verse 11. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So what sacrament did God give to confirm this promise to Noah's body, to our body? Well, look at verse 13. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So that's the third proof that God gave a word promise to Noah and all our descendant, his descendants. And he signed and sealed that promise with the sacrament of the rainbow. So the promise was received in spirit and in body. Now, what was true about all of those covenants and every covenant that God has made with man is still true today. God has given us a sure word promise in the gospel. And here it is, that, that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life, and whoever does not have the Son does not have life. That's the word promise. And then he signed and sealed that promise in the sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper. So that in those two things, we see the infinite kindness of God. He promised our spirits life in his Son, a promise that we can hear. And he's allowed us to taste and smell and touch and see that promise in the sacraments. 
So that's our doctrine. Sacraments are solemn oaths that God adds to his word promise so that we can taste and see and hear and touch that he is our God and we are his people. So let's then look to our duty this morning. We're going to partake in the sacraments after the message, but our duty here is just simply to think hard about the sacraments. And we're going to think hard about the sacraments by addressing three objections. Objection number one goes like this. Sacraments are only signs. They are not seals. Sacraments are only signs. They are not seals. In other words, sacraments that we participate in are not solemn covenant oaths between God and the believer, but they are merely external signs that point to gospel truths. Now, this is sometimes called the memorialist view of the sacraments, that they are merely meant for us to remember gospel truths in symbolic external signs. How do we answer that? Well, we 100% affirm that sacraments are indeed signs of what Christ has done, and they are not a part of Christ himself. Uh, this is, the, this is the, the, the Roman Catholic era. The main problem with Mass is that they teach that the sign of the supper actually transforms into the substance of Christ. The, the bread becomes the body. The wine becomes the blood in a process called transubstantiation. So it's no longer a remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice. It's a continual sacrifice that happens again and again every Mass. This is why historically many of the Reformers were willing to be martyrs over their disagreement with mass because it destroys the gospel. Rome teaches that it is not a sign, but a sacrifice of Christ. And that means that Christ's work is not finished. So we 100% affirm that sacraments are signs of gospel truths. But they are more than signs. They are more than signs. They are also seals. That meaning that they are federal or covenant transactions as Paul teaches here in Romans 4.11. That's how every sacrament is used in the Bible. Let me ask you, what good would it be if the rainbow was merely a sign that God hung his war bow up in the heavens? What good would that be without a solemn oath attached to that sign? How do we know that he's actually not going to flood the earth again? When you see a rainbow, you, you don't just simply say, hey, look, the, God's put his bow in the air. Look at that sign. No, you remember the promise. Oh, and he's never going to flood the earth again. That's the seal. Or think of marriage. What bride would be satisfied if her groom handed her the ring and said, honey, this, uh, this is merely a sign of marriage. It's an unbroken circle signifying that marriage is meant to be permanent until death. Would that satisfy her? 
No, she would want the seal that the, that the sign points to. She would want the promise. She would want the solemn oath, I take you to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving, your faithful husband in sickness and in health, in plenty and want, in joy and sorrow, as long as we both shall live. And then she would want that solemn oath put on her finger and sealed with a kiss. So that's the answer to our first objection. Yes, sacraments are signs. They do not transform into a part of Christ. They point to gospel truths, but they are also seals, federal covenant transactions between God and us. Objection number two. Infants should not receive the sacrament of baptism because they do not believe. Infants should not receive the sign of baptism because they do not believe. Now, I've been working on you Baptist brothers and sisters for years now. I'm going to take another swing at it right now. The only reason that you should not baptize your babies is if The covenant of grace is somehow different between the Old and the New Testament. But didn't we hear the force of Paul's argument in Romans 4? Abraham was saved the exact same way that we are today. He wasn't saved by circumcision, just like we are not saved by baptism. He was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What does that prove? It proves that we belong to the same covenant of grace that he does. And that's precisely what our Westminster standards say. In chapter seven, paragraph six, it says, there are therefore not Two covenants of grace, differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So just consider the the logic, the implication of this in a syllogism. Premise one, in the Old Testament, children of believers were included in the covenant. Nobody disputes that. Premise two, New Testament believers are in the same covenant. Conclusion, therefore the children of New Testament believers are also included in the covenant. Beloved, this is precisely what the New Testament teaches. It doesn't teach something different than the old. When we get to 1 Corinthians 7.14, we just taught on this. What does Paul call all of your children? I don't care what label you put on yourself, okay? Dispensational, covenantal, Baptist, Presbyterian. What does God call all of your children? Holy. 1 Corinthians 7.14, he calls your children holy. Holy. He doesn't mean salvifically holy. He means covenantally holy. The apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ insists that our children have a different status than the children of the world. And that's not something that you can dispute. 
That's why Paul addresses children in his letters. Beloved, that's why we address your children. We address your children because they belong to the covenant from this pulpit. Baptizing them does not make them a covenant child. They were already a covenant child because they belong to you and you belong to the covenant of grace, which has always included the children of believers. This is what God said to Abraham in Genesis 17, 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. What covenant is that? The covenant of grace. Paul just demonstrated that. But you might say to me, well, but if the sacrament of baptism is a seal of the covenant, then I can't baptize my baby because they don't yet believe. Well, Little baby Isaac, eight days old, was sealed with the sacrament of circumcision, Genesis 21.4, before he could believe. If God gave the seal of circumcision to Old Testament babies, then there is no problem whatsoever in giving the seal of baptism to New Testament babies. The be- when we're talking about the believer, baptism, for the believer, baptism is a present seal a present seal of the righteousness of Christ. For babies, baptism is a provisional seal of the righteousness of Christ. It's a provisional seal, meaning that your baby will receive all the benefits of salvation provided that he believes. So loved ones, baptize your babies. Baptize your households. And then point to their baptism and say this to them. Say this to them. Say, look, God has already laid claim on you in baptism. He set you apart from the children of this world. Believe on his name. Call on him. Lay lay hold upon his promises. He's given you both the seal and the sign in baptism that if you do, he will certainly wash away your sins and give you the righteousness of Christ. You want to preach the gospel to your children? Baptize your babies. It's powerful, loved ones. So that answers the second objection. Objection number three. This is what the skeptic says. What good is all this word and sacrament? If this is as important as you say, then where are all the results? Where are all the results? There are disciples of Christ in every nation. The scripture has been translated nearly in every tongue. The great commission is not failing. The nations will be discipled. Why are there disciples in every nation? Because word and sacrament is actually working. And the promise that word and sacrament will work is actually all over the Bible. Isaiah 2, 2 through 3, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and all nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord 
to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Or Romans 11, 25, and 26 promises that Israel one day will finally turn back to the Lord and the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. Psalm twenty-two thirty. 31 says, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation that they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Beloved, that's the final fruit of the Great Commission. Rome was the most powerful nation in the ancient world, and it was defeated by word and sacrament under Constantine. It's working. And the word and sacrament will continue to work until the knowledge of the Lord covers the the earth as the waters cover the sea. That answers the third objection. So to sum up our duty, we must think hard about the sacraments. One, we should consider that they are not merely signs, but seals, solemn oaths of God's covenant. Two, that our children also belong to this covenant, and therefore we should baptize them with the sign and the seal of it. Three, that the word and sacrament is conquering the world. It's more powerful than bombs and bullets, than politicians and propaganda, and it will succeed because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Let's look finally at our delight this morning. If you have never read um, any biographies or any, seen any movies about Martin Luther, I would encourage you to do so. He was a very earthy man in the best sense. He wasn't one of those, you know, kind of theologians in his ivory towers. He had his hands in the muck and the mud. And you know, if you've read anything about him, that you know that he had great bouts of depression and anxiety. There were dark times of fear in Luther's life where he even doubted his salvation. One author reported that at times he became so frightened that he had visions of Satan standing before him, ready to usher him through the gates of hell. What did Luther do? He, he placed a plaque of all the plaques that you're going to put in your house, like verses or whatever, I, I bet this one has never come across your mind before. He placed a plaque in his house that said, remember your baptism. Luther understood that the fact of his baptism was much stronger than any doubt or anxiety that he might produce. And he was often heard repeating to himself when under depression and anxiety, he would say, I am baptized, I am baptized. Beloved, I know that you fail. I know that you often come in here defeated and ashamed. I know that you often hate yourself for the sin that you keep going back to and that you're so frustrated that you feel like you just can't get it together. So I exhort you in Christ's name, remember your baptism. 
I don't mean remember what it felt like. I don't, remem- I don't mean remember who did it, or I don't mean remember on what day it happened. I mean that this thing is true about you. This is your most essential identity before you are a husband, a wife, a child, a baker, a butcher, a candlestick maker. Before all of those identities, you are this one thing. You are a baptized disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luther put it in the most plain terms. He said this, for this reason, we must Hold boldly and fearlessly to our baptism and hold it up against all sins and terrors of conscience and humbly say, I know full well that I have not a single work which is pure, but I am baptized and through my baptism, God who cannot lie bound himself in covenant with me, not to count my sin against me, but to slay it and blot it out. Beloved, remember your baptism. The last two Lord's Days, I was up in Moscow uh, dropping Josiah off at college and getting him settled in. I had to sleep on an air mattress for a week in a third-story floor with no air conditioning. It was awful. I know, first-world problems, right? Good, good. Um, I, I did absolutely miss being here with all of you, but I will say this. Um, it's an anecdote, so take it, take it how you want to take it. But the last two Sundays that I was up there, I cried during Lord's Supper. I'd been reading up on the sacraments, um, and I, I realized that I had undervalued and underestimated them. And I, was, and I was, was taking Lord's Supper, it hit me so much deeper that the bread and the wine are not merely a sign of Christ's body and blood. They are that. But they're also his solemn oath to me. And it's his solemn oath to you that his covenant with you is stronger than sin, it's stronger than death, it's stronger than the flames of hell. Scripture says, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. God has given us the precious gospel in a word of promise. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. And then Christ has given us his sacrament that we might taste and see and touch and smell that same saving promise with our bodies. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. So just as we are hearing the word preached now, and you can sense Christ's presence as you believe his word, as you receive him, as you believe on his name, so Christ is present with us as we exercise that same faith in the sacrament. He is present for both our spirit and for our body. We don't get a better Christ in the sacrament than we do in the word, but we do get Christ better. That's what all of these means of grace are for, to get Christ better, to get 
more of Christ. So, beloved, that is our delight. Number one, remember your baptism. In the darkness, remember that your baptism is a solemn oath from God that your sins have already been washed and purged for your whole life. Therefore, if you are in sin, what should you do? Simple, confess and repent of it and then stand up on your feet as a baptized man or woman and follow him. Don't wallow in your sin. You are a baptized disciple. And then secondly, when you feast on the Lord's Supper this morning, take it as a solemn oath on Christ's part, an indestructible seal that you belong to him. You are his, both body and soul, bought by his precious blood. And you have everlasting righteousness that you can taste and touch and smell and see.